Hello everybody, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver. I am happy to be with you at this, the beginning of the second week of the Trump presidency. And, (laughs) Lord, the good news is we only have 207 weeks left. Um, uh, Actually, if he wins two terms, 415 weeks left. I did the math. So, um, wow, here we are. And, um, you know, if there was any shred of hope that Donald Trump would change and become more presidential after the oath of office, that hope has been dashed upon the rocks. (laughs) And we are into the first moment of the chaos presidency. Now, he... Trump and his movement are also often referred to using the 2016 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year, post-truth. He's the post-truth president. We're in a new post-truth era. And that's instantly interesting to an evolutionary because they're talking about post. There's a movement. There's something beyond what we have, something that is worth looking at and unpacking. So I want to do that on this podcast. But before I get into all of that, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Integral Life who have debuted their new website. It's still IntegralLife.com, but spiffed up all around. A lot easier to navigate and uh, snappy, and I really like it. I also want to point out that on the site, is uh, uh, something that I've talked about at least the last podcast, and that is a paper that Ken Wilber wrote on this topic of the post-truth world. Uh, It's titled Trump and a Post-Truth World, and it is available free on Integral Life. And uh, 90 pages, brilliant. I wish everybody in the intelligentsia would read it. So pass it around to your smart friends. I know a lot of you are members of Integral Life, but if you're not, you ought to consider it. If you're interested in Integral Theory and what's going on in the Integral community, it's the central portal for all of that. It's 100 bucks a year, and um, you know it's the original home of the Daily Evolver. Uh, I now have my own site, dailyevolver.com, which you can go to, and um, you know I have other things posted there. One of the things I have posted there at the Daily Evolver is a chart of the levels of development, which is a key part of integral theory. Integral theory posits that there's an evolution of culture and consciousness, as well as the evolution of the material world and the biosphere and so forth. So if you want to follow along, if you're new to this, or if you want to just sort of get deeper into it, go to dailyevolver.com, scroll down a bit, you'll see about integral theory, click that, And at the top is the chart, and there's a couple other charts and other things there as well that you'll find interesting. All right. Okay, already. So let's take a look at this post-truth meme, this word of the year, which the Oxford Dictionary defines as, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And I'll say that again. Post-truth is, quote, relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief, unquote. Now, I would argue that the mode of communication and influence that they're describing here is, developmentally speaking, not so much post-truth as it is pre-truth. I mean, thinking that comes out of the gut, thinking that is based on emotions or hardened prejudices, uh, this is as old as the hills. This is the mode of thinking that virtually everybody had. It's all they had. 
for the vast majority of human history. If we say that human culture is 70,000 years old, and that seems to be the latest guess, then what we do know is that about 69,500 of those years, all but 500, were spent in a mode of thinking that was superstitious, magical, mythic, based on great stories, emotional, full of prejudices of all sorts, uh, often inspiring, still inspiring, but not yet arriving at the level of development of thinking that was brought on by modernity, you know, beginning 500 years ago and really kicking into gear about 300 years ago. And of course, the great realization of modernity is that the world is knowable in its objective manifestations, that thunder is not the product of an angry God, but it's the sound that ions or something make. I don't know. <laughs> we have to check Ben Franklin for that. But, you know, there's a scientific explanation for that. And whatever it is, it's not an angry God. So, if you're looking at our levels of development chart, what I'm referring to is the pre-truth era, everything that leads up to the modern stage of development. So the stage directly before modernity is traditionalism. There are a lot of people who are fundamentally traditional thinkers now. Um, before that is what we call the warrior stage of development or the red stage of development. And this is the world of magic, power gods, fighting. This is actually the world of Donald Trump in important ways, uh, which I've talked about in previous podcasts and we'll look at in a minute. But, you know, beginning 500 years ago, all of that, the red magic, the amber myth, all of that was overwritten by a mode of thinking that we call rational, logical, objective, uh, a mode of thinking that opens up a whole new world of technology and you know, tripled lifespans of the modern world. Look around the, you know, the skyscrapers, all of the amazing benefits. And for those of us who are living in societies that take advantage of those benefits, the, those of us who are living in the developed world, uh, we really appreciate, or we ought to for sure, appreciate its safety, its freedom, its bounty. And when we do, we respect the world of, of objective fact that undergirds modern life, our modern world. And we get nervous when we see the factual world come under assault because whether or not we're aware of it consciously, there's a part of us that's nervous because we know that this, you know, subterranean world of spirits and emotions and passions and hysteria and revenge and mobs of, you know, history, in other words, is just right under the surface. And incidentally, it's all right under the surface of our own individual psyches too. You know, think about your own crazy appetites and lusts and rages. And for some of us, these things occasionally pop through our veneer of rationality. And, you know, we got to keep an eye on that. So to recap, walking up the developmental ladder, we have the early stages of pre-truth, the stages before modernity. We have the stage of truth, which is modernity, factual, scientific. And then we, you know, keep going. God is too good to just let us rest. <laughs> and we move to post-modernity. And post-modernity is where this idea of post-truth begins to get very, very interesting. A minute ago, I mentioned Ken Wilber's new essay, Trump and the Post-Truth World. And it turns out that I interviewed Ken a few days ago on the paper, and we're going to post that interview soon. But I wanted to play an excerpt from it now because he so beautifully sets up how philosophical postmodernity came into being and, of course, kicked off and co-arose with the great flowering of postmodernity in the 60s. So here's Ken. It started out by simply noticing, as a lot of the early 
postmodern writers put it. There's nothing but history. And the reason is, as they sort of tried to kind of look for universal truths and and things that, that you could count on to be true for all people at all places at all times, and they couldn't come up with much. All they would, would see is, is, well, boy, you know, 500 years ago they believed this, and then a thousand years ago they believed that, and mm-hmm. everything was changing. Everything was a product of history. So if you take all of the great postmodernists, if you take uh, Derrida, Foucault, Bourdieu, Lacan, Leotard, Paul Demand, Stanley Fish, all of them would agree on one thing, namely, there's no such thing as truth. Truth is just a cultural fabrication. And whatever anybody calls truth is simply whatever some culture at some place or time can convince people is true. But that's it. It's a fashion. It's a fad. It's no more real than hemlinks. And this goes for science. The difference between science and poetry? None. Not in terms of truth. Because there is no truth. And so, all of a sudden, this started, um, I mean, I noticed this starting to dominate academia 30 years or so ago. I mean, it, it, sort of, it, started, it came in in the early 1960s. People that had heard of deconstruction or postmodern, post-structuralism, uh, a very, very small percentage of the population. By 1979, the most widely quoted academic writer in America was Jacques Derrida. And the humanities itself became just overtaken by a post modern post-structuralism or a deconstruction and all of a sudden truth was out okay so then what happens to a culture when its philosophical underpinnings are that there are no truth it's sort of the opposite of underpinnings the expression of that to me after giving it a lot of thought, we, you know, people have talked about that in, in Integral for a long time. Um, the, every stage of development has some way of saying you're, you're in or you're out or you're good or you're not. And they divide the world up. Red warrior culture divides the world between the predator and the prey. Um, amber traditionalism divides the world between the saints and the sinners. Modernity divides the world between the winners and the losers. So what does green do? And green divides the world between people who are cool and people who are not cool. Can't you just feel it? That's the vibe of all things postmodern. And what does that even mean? What does cool mean? And you can sort of trace it back to this idea of being post-truth. Because one of the things people realized after the first half of the 20th century, which was barbaric, it was a modern technology wedded to pre-modern morality. It was was freak show. So after the conflagrations of World War II, uh, people realized that all of these grand narratives of history were all just a bunch of shit. Look where they led. Science, the great enlightenment project, the idea that once all people became rational that our problems would be solved, all of that, look where it led. To concentration camps, to nuclear bombs. So don't tell me about the superiority of your rationality and science. And then you can go back to the previous stage. Your God, where was your God in all of this? So God, science, all of it's out. And so since there's nothing to believe in anymore, the only thing we have left is to sort of feel sorry for, and superior to, of course, the poor schmucks who still believe in anything, like God and country, and make fun of them. Well... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. The empire (laughs) bites back with Donald Trump, 
who, if you think about it, is not cool. He's not a cool guy. He's vulgar. He's ostentatious. He's embarrassing. He has a hideous comb over. He ran casinos, beauty pageants, you know, the whole bit. And now he's um, the uh, transfiguration <laughs> of, the, of the God and country people. And who are, like him, proud to be uncool. They never got it in the first place. I remember when I visited some of my old friends after I'd moved to Boulder and become postmodern and cool, I guess, <laughs> or thought I was. But I, I, I literally started using the word cool. You know, that's cool. Let's do this. Cool. And one of my friends stopped me one time and said, when did you start using cool? He says, it's annoying. I don't like that cool thing. And I didn't quite get the significance of it at the time. It seemed odd to me, but it really does epitomize this, this move into the sort of the green, the, 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 what is the expression of a post-truth world where, you know, we just bebop around. You know, we're on the Sun Rock hurtling through space and, you know, uh, at least let's not be a square. And you see the expressions in culture of irony and cynicism and anti-heroes and, you know, transgression itself became a basis for art. Okay, so we've now seen the evolution of truth in human history. And of course, integral theory shows us that this pattern repeats itself in each of our own individual histories. We're born as babies into a magical world. Then we download the great national religious myths. And then we, some of us, are drawn into a scientific worldview, and some fewer of us are drawn into a postmodern worldview. And of course, the beat goes on. Hallelujah. And some more, fewer of us are drawn into the next stage of consciousness. And that is what we call the integral stage of consciousness. And it has its own unique relationship to the truth. And we're just sort of figuring out what it is. And, and the fact that it's so sort of up and in our face in our culture with Trump and the whole post-truth meme, uh, it just begs to be explored. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're the explorers. We're exploring new territory and we're planting our flag so that we can cut the grooves for the next stage of human development. Okay, so what does this integral territory look like? What is beyond post-truth? I start with what I consider to be a core integral practice, and that is to welcome in all of the previous stages with an open heart and an open mind. So that means the Trump supporter, that means Trump himself, ah! and Kellyanne, oh my God. Well, the, let's remember that practice is the thing we do not to be successful, but faithful. So we can do it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we want uh, to see the value in everybody. That's actually one of the principles of integral theory and practice. And I love that. Each stage and each person has some precious piece of the truth that others of us don't. And as an integral practitioner, we want to be able to see that truth and to include it to integrate it into a larger, more complex consciousness, uh, a consciousness that can hold multiple perspectives. Because let's face it, the aforementioned stages of development are all natural enemies in the wild. Liberals and conservatives basically hate each other. They don't understand each other. They don't process information the same way. We, as we see they don't relate to truth in the same way. And this is the basis of the culture wars. And as integralists, we say to the culture wars, or at least I do, bring it on. This is the way of evolution, is that we fight our way forward. 
we also, the other F word, our way forward, uh, but that's another podcast. <laughs> or actually, it's what we're going to do here and now, and that is to love, let's say, our way forward by taking a breath, expanding, and including more of our crazy, mixed-up human family. Okay, so let's start with those crazy Trump people. And actually, before we do that, let's just do an update snapshot here of Trump himself. And so here we are in the aftermath of his first, you know, consequential official act, this travel ban from these Muslim countries, and how poorly executed it was, whatever you may think of the merits. And, you know, with rookie mistakes, like not vetting it with your own Secretary of Defense or your your own about to be Secretary of State or the National Security Advisor. So the pundits are all sitting here wondering, how could he do that? And my answer is that the guy acts out of an unadulterated red. And red is about fighting. That's the real fighting meme. Uh, that's where if you wake up in the morning and you don't have an enemy and you don't have somebody that you're going up against, then you don't feel alive. And you also don't feel like you're doing your job, that you're being responsible because the enemy's out there and they're fighting and they're scheming and it's a fight to the finish. It's either you or them. And if you're really good at this, you apparently get a long way, including to the presidency of the United States. And Donald Trump, unfortunately, I guess, has had zero feedback from life that this behavior doesn't work. I've explained a lot of my argument for Donald Trump's redness in previous podcasts, including, I think, um, Trump the Terrible, the boy who would be king. And then the latest one was right before the inauguration, the Trump era day 45, prepare for impact. So I don't want to repeat all of that here. but. I do want to say that one of the best ways to understand Trump's leadership style, if you will, is to look at what the leadership style of Red is, which is warlord, basically. And warlords rule by being ruthless, by being impulsive, decisive. I mean, it's, it's almost like 80 plus percent of the job is just keeping everybody's eyeballs on you. And you don't do that by going along and getting along. You do that by keeping people in a certain chaos and confusion, and then going in and setting things straight. So will Trump learn his lesson from the chaos he caused from this travel ban? I don't think so. Uh, not if he continues to play to tight. So to me, there's a couple questions at this stage of the game. The first is, is Donald Trump deploying these red actions, this creation of chaos, and his red persona as a tough guy, is he using those deliberately, but from a higher place where he has a choice in the matter? If he was doing that, that would be basically an integral move, a move that understands that creation and destruction are indestructible polarities, and they have to happen at the same time. And it's like the Zen master. Sometimes I have to hit people with a stick. And when necessary, I can be amber and believe in God, and I can be orange and I can plan and work in the capitalist system. And I can even be green and hobnob with Manhattan glitterati for several decades. So if he's doing that, he would be what spiral dynamics would call a spiral wizard. And he's a virtuoso in playing in all stages of development. But I fear he is not doing this out of choice, but simply out of compulsion and, frankly, a personality disorder that is some combination of narcissism and ADD. So that's one question. The second question is, can the system contain him? If whether or not he's read by choice or compulsion, can the system stand? Um, the, the other branches of government, the military, the bureaucracy, uh, the world community, can they withstand this force of nature 
that has suddenly blown into a Category 5 and threatens to blow down the House and Senate. Um, I think we're going to see a test of this actually coming up, and that's the specific test where Trump has asked his Defense Department to see how we can defeat ISIS in 30 days and to change the rules of engagement to make that happen. And this is really going to be interesting because, you know, all he's actually asking us to do or the military to do is to go back to the rules, rules of engagement that we had in uh, World War II, where we, you know, didn't worry about civilian casualties, or at least we didn't worry about them enough to stop us from firebombing and, and, and ultimately dropping nuclear weapons. And people who are at that traditional stage of development, which is basically the center of gravity in World War II, uh, can't understand why we fight these long, endless wars with these, you know, little pissant enemies. And when we defeated the Nazis in the Imperial Japan in four years. And the answer is, is because we have had enormous moral development since World War II. And we're not willing to kill innocent people, women and children, and wreck cities. Uh, and instead, we fight these long, low-level, grinding wars that actually create, historically, compared to any wars in history, stunningly small numbers of casualties. We're actually seeing a throwback to the World War II rules of engagement in Syria, where Russia is bombing civilians and, and, and cities. And Trump's like, why don't we do that? What's up with that? And that's where, you know, that certain percentage, 30, maybe 40% of the population thinks that that's what they want too. Now, wait till they see it on TV. So anyway, to get back to this question of can the system contain him, will the military go along? He's the commander-in-chief. There is a chain of command. The military ethos is that you obey the chain of command unless the order is illegal. And that we learned from World War II. So we're about to see something very interesting unfold here. I would also add that the longer grinding war can eventually pay off. I mean, we're seeing that with ISIS. Uh, ISIS is about to lose the rest of Mosul, and they're on the run, which to a red mindset says, this is the time you squash them like a bug, so they never come back. And then, actually, if you use World War II moral development, you go in and rebuild the country. You don't occupy, you don't exploit. This is the you know, move into modernity where you realize that the way forward is to build a trading partner to become friends with this country that you defeated. That's where Donald Trump doesn't even make it to sort of traditional amber. I mean, he's down in red where it's like defeat Iraq and take their oil. Um, that's, you know, the plunders of war. I get that from a red perspective, you would be ir irresponsible not to. Um, build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. These kinds of statements, <laughs> I mean, they're red, they're the garden variety. Uh, you would, you know, in a real red culture, you'd enslave the Mexicans and make them build it. And it just shows how much moral development has taken hold that to hear people talk about that now, you know, you'd think they were the drunk at the end of the bar or the president of the United States. I've got to stop laughing about this. A friend warned me the other day, Trump isn't funny. So, sorry for laughing. But really, we're about to see if the system can contain this guy. And I suspect it can. Um, I saw it was a little bit hopeful that Trump, while still insisting that torture works and he's for it, he'll defer to his generals. So, we'll see how this goes. I think it's pretty much the way Bill Maher put it, in his last show, uh, it all depends on sane Republicans. Will John McCain and Lindsey Graham and Jeff Flake and Ben Sass, will these guys join with the Democrats to 
oppose Trump when he goes too far outside of the box, or the generals, as I mentioned, or the bureaucracy, which is well known to throw a monkey wrench in the plans and orders of presidents that they don't agree with. It may turn out that the bureaucracy is our new best friend. And I certainly don't rule out that all of this could lead to a constitutional crisis. And the dreams of some of my liberal friends will come true. And Donald Trump will not finish his first term. And the land will be blessed with a President Pence. Okay, so enough about Trump for now. Uh, Let's look at the people who support Trump. And we all know who these people are. The racists, the sexists, and the xenophobes. And this is the perspective of these people from the left. And that's the perspective that keeps the culture wars going. An integral perspective would maybe choose different words to start, uh, like ethnocentric, nationalistic, uh, people who prefer traditional sex roles. And yes, although we can see that the bulk of, of Trump supporters uh, skew around the demographic of white, rural, non-college educated voters, people who supported Trump and people who resonate with this traditional stage of development with amber values are really all over the culture. I mean, they, they live modern lives. They do modern work. They have higher education, many of them. Many of them are very successful, make a lot of money. But there's a essential part of their identity, of their self-sense, that just is more comfortable, that resonates more with traditional values. You see people like this in the integral movement. Uh, There are a number of people who have written to me and say, don't assume that I wasn't for Trump. I listen to your podcast all the time and I get it and I think he's the better choice. And a lot of these people come to these values after giving them a lot of thought. I think one of the best examples of this is Steve Bannon, or who was the editor of Breitbart News and became um, Donald Trump's sort of philosophical advisor and visionary of the Trump presidency. Steve Bannon and a lot of intellectual conservatives believe that Western civilization was bequeathed to us by Almighty God. And in the case of Steve Bannon, and I'll quote him, he says that the Catholic Church and our Western civilization is the flower of mankind. Now, I don't agree with that, at least not in the more or less literal way that he does. But can I respect that position? And the answer is yes. At any rate, I can see that Western civilization is an astonishing achievement of mankind and that it needs to be valued and protected. Bannon argues for a, quote, enlightened capitalism, where he asks the question, should we put a cap on wealth creation and distribution? Well, that's interesting to me. He says, it's something that should be at the heart of every Christian who is a capitalist. Quote, what is the purpose of whatever I'm doing with this wealth? What is the purpose of what I'm doing with the ability that God has given us? the divine providence that he has given us to actually be the creator of, dro- of jobs and the creator of wealth. Now, you drop the God part out of there, there's a lot that liberals could agree with there. But it's hard to drop the God part out because it's so central to his worldview. And this gets to how a pre-modern mentality deals with truth. They see that there is a truth that is greater than facts. And that is that we are living in a world created for us by Almighty God, who created each of us deliberately and specifically. And that first spark of life in the womb is the touch of God, and that we are here fighting a battle for God in a fallen world, and that we are indeed God's chosen people. And it is our duty to notice that 
and to fucking act like it. You know, God put us here to do something. Let's do it. So they really do believe in the superiority of Christianity or whatever religion and their culture. That's kind of part of the deal at that structure of consciousness, which we can refer to as absolutistic. Not only do they have truth, they have absolute truth. The grand narratives of history are still very much alive. Now, a modernist hears this and says, not only is it silly and unverifiable, you know, Jesus walked on water, the resurrection, all of it, it's, it's myth. And then Green sees this and says that it's not only silly, but it's dangerous. And it's regressive in trying to pull us back to dark times of racism and sexism and xenophobia and all of the ethnic conflicts of history that are still going on. Can't you people see that? Now, from an integral view, we can see all of those perspectives. We literally identify with the space within which perspectives arise. So all of those perspectives can be online in an integral consciousness without us being contracted around any one of them. Now, we may have a home base that we used to be contracted around. Most of us are coming out of green or you know, some version of modernity. Uh, but we don't necessarily privilege it because we can see that there is truth in that whole system. And we can see through the eyes of a traditionalist in the sense that, yes, we too can see that the world is a miracle, that life is a miracle, that there is some loving intelligence that appears to be online and available to us, and that we can relate to that. And that can be a beacon in our life and, and provide the greatest meaning to our life. But we drop that ethnocentric mythology that says that we are in a battle with the forces of evil, aka other religions and cultures. And so that's what Integral does. <laughs> Integral takes the goodies and runs. <laughs> Actually, Integral sees what's healthy about any single first tier perspective and also sees what isn't. And you know, separates the two. It's not that hard. When, when you're expanded enough to hold a perspective, there's a sort of a natural intelligence. This is maybe God, you know, this loving intelligence that comes in and lets you know what's good and what's not so good about any single perspective. It's just sort of there. It's called wisdom, I think. And we can bring this same wisdom to our investigation of the modern perspective, which we can also easily and fully hold and say, hey, rationality, how fabulous are you that you led us to free ourselves from the tyrannies and cruelties of superstition, unlock the secrets of nature, turn a big pile of dirt into a Toyota. We send these amazing giant eyeballs out into space to get an ever bigger view of our cosmic neighborhood and apple martinis as my friend maria would say what a world it is when we can have an apple martini whenever we want so yeah thank you modern rational world of facts and physics and chemistry and biology and as integralists we appreciate this immeasurably and we also see where Rationality has overstepped its bounds. Uh, rationality, science, fact, these are all the domain of exterior manifest reality. In integral theory, these are the right-hand quadrants, the material world. And material sciences are very potent in this world. The principles and formulas of chemistry and physics and biology are as true in China as they are here or anywhere else. But like all first-tier memes, rationality falls in love with itself and thinks that it's the only game in town. 
and it either ignores or tries to colonize interior reality, the world of faith and belief and meaning, creativity and free will. And science and rationality wants to expand itself into what we call the social sciences, anthropology, sociology, psychology, uh, even biology to a degree. Um, I think it's just astonishing that the whole medical dogma on saturated fat that I grew up in that dominated medicine for 30 years is now out the door. Now we're on to sugar. Um, I don't know. I saw a study the other day that said that flossing your teeth doesn't do any good. I mean, I'm betrayed by, quote, science. And by the way, I'm still flossing. Uh, but in social sciences, there's a movement to try to duplicate well-known social science experiments about how people act in various situations. You read them all the time. It's the stuff of psychology today and countless websites. It's interesting. It's good. It moves the ball. But these studies are not always true in the sense that they're not replicatable. I mean, that, of course, is one of the basic uh, pillars of science is that what's true in one place is always true in all places. You can say that about, you know, water molecules. You can't say that about human beings. So as integralists, we want to both value the amazing tool of rationality, and we want to be careful that it's not overextended into dimensions of life that aren't rational. And those are the left-hand quadrants. That's the world of interiority, the world of my individual psyche, which is, you know, trailing 10,000 years of karma. And, and, and of course, culture, which is just a bunch of people trailing, you know, millions of years, you might say, of karma. So we just get smarter about all of it. We hold truth claims a little more lightly, and we also want to be more steadfast and ferocious even in defending what is factually true about the material world, such as how many people were on the Washington Mall during Trump's inauguration. That's a knowable fact. We have photographs. But how about his tandem claim that he would have won the election if it weren't for three to five million people who voted illegally. Now, that's a little softer fact because we don't have photographic proof, but we do have enough information from people whose job it is to know such things to know that this is not a problem, certainly nothing of the magnitude that he says. And we're seeing an interesting pushback from the mainstream media who, uh, you know, they're planning their flag for facts against this pre-truth president. And uh, you'll see it even from Fox News, or at least some quarters of Fox News, the mainstream part of Fox News. And by that, I mean the non-Sean Hannity part, or Fox and Friends too. But throughout the day on Fox News, you hear a, 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 a solid factual pushback on this. And I would offer you this snippet from the other day on Shepard Smith's midday show where he pushes back against Trump's claims. Fox News is not aware of any reliable studies or information that suggests that there is widespread voter fraud anywhere in America. Individual secretaries of state across the nation oversee elections. Most of them happen to be Republican. And every secretary of state in the United States reports there is no widespread voter fraud. A Pew study, once cited by the president's team, shows not a single incident of voter fraud across the nation. And even Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan said yesterday, there is no evidence. President Trump has said that he would have won the popular vote, except that millions of people, three to five million people, voted illegally. Again, he has presented no reliable evidence, and neither Fox News nor any other organization of any kind has presented any evidence of voter fraud. All right already, Shep, we get it. Facts, evidence, you're all about it. 
And I got to say, that gives me a lot of reassurance, as did Greg Gutfeld uh, on the same day on the show The Five, where he was commenting on how reasonable, sane Republicans can deal with these obvious lies. And here's what he had to say. The one good, I mean, the one thing that I, I think is important about the five and us here is that nobody is actually agreeing with Donald Trump. And we're showing you don't have to agree with everything that he says. It's not a loyalty test every time he says something. When he says there's three million fraudulent votes, you can still like the guy and go, that's BS. The problem is he's surrounded by a lot of people that just go, do we agree with him or not? Will I lose my job? Uh, you know, it, does, it doesn't have to be fealty 24-7. You can actually say... Lighten up, it's nuts, you won. So that, my friends, is the sound of the system trying to contain uh, Donald Trump. A modernist system based on facts and evidence pushing back against a essentially red, pre-modern, pre-truth president who is used to reality being whatever he says it is. That people on the right are making the kind of distinction that Greg Gutfield just made is a, you know, just a real-time sign. It's evidence of cultural evolution. <laughs> and so, again, as integralists, we take a breath and hold all of it as we expand to include the postmodern view. How does integral relate to the post-truth world? Again, I go to Ken Wilbur and his new paper, Trump in the Post-Truth World, where he talks about the green post-truth ethos that says, and I'll quote him here, he says, there is no universally valid perspective. Therefore, all knowledge is based on mere interpretation announced from a privileged, therefore oppressive perspective. So for Green, since there's no universal truths, what history really amounts to is one group of people oppressing the next, and whoever was able to do that was in charge and got to write the rules for what was true. Ken continues, he says, also, there is no universal moral framework. What is true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Isn't that just the slogan of uh, the motto of the postmodern world? And I love what he says. He says, neither of those claims, uh, what's true for me is true for me, what's true for you is true for you, neither of those claims can be challenged on any grounds that do not amount to oppression. So, very interesting. And so, that becomes the story of the green meme. That's the truth of the green, green meme. That's the one truth that they will buy. And that is that... Uh, there is no truth, and therefore all claims to such are oppressive. So, if the truth is really nothing more than a power grab, then our first job as postmodernists in this post-truth world is to rescue all the people who have been shut out, who have been left behind and marginalized, uh, the victims of the earlier truth claims. And this kind of thinking gave rise to a whole new cultural emergence that started taking shape in the 60s and continues to this day. And that is the anti-authoritarianism, challenge authority, um, rehabilitating the powerless, uh, rescuing women from the patriarchy, minorities, gays, the poor, the oppressed, the indigenous population, uh, the people who are living in countries that have been plundered by colonialism, uh, exploited by modern capitalism. This becomes the organizing energy, the, the principle, the motivating energy behind green consciousness. And this too is an astonishing achievement of humanity that after creating this modern world that we want to look back and see who has been left behind. And that comes out of this ever greater sensitivity that comes online. This is just the natural evolution of human consciousness, is that we develop a sensitivity towards other people's interiors, other people's feelings, other people's worldviews, other people's cultures. 
except, of course, for the culture we ourselves are trying to escape. So it's still okay to make fun of and look down on Yehu Christians and hillbillies and all of that. But we want to open our hearts to Muslims, which, of course, is all good unless you're rejecting your own traditionalist roots. And this is where we start running off the rails. I think it's really interesting um, to look at our green selves and to really touch into our own sensitivities and to realize that those sensitivities have evolved. I mean, I think of myself as, you know, a gay kid in the Steel Valley in the 60s and 70s. You know, by any standard of how I understand human rights now, I was oppressed. I wasn't able to speak about my love or my passions or uh, young teenage love was off the table for me. But was I angry about it? No, it's just the way things were. I couldn't reveal who I was and I was willing to live my life accordingly. And that's true for people who are at traditional or early modern stages of development. You accept your lot, even if you get the bad end of the stick. I have so many of my liberal women friends who were just deeply outraged that Trump, this misogynist molester, this this pussy grabber, is the president of the United States. And they can't understand how 51% of white women voted for him. And two or three of them have told me stories about how they, in their earlier life, were groped. Or one of my friends had somebody expose himself to her as an 11-year-old girl. And they didn't tell anybody. It didn't register then as deeply as it does now. And that's simply the result of evolution. We have a graduated outrage. And now we just, I mean, it's viscerally repulsive. You know, there's a a, a simple example of, I grew up in a household where both of my parents smoked. They smoked in the house. They smoked in the car. They smoked. I didn't. It was just how it was. And now, if I walk next to somebody who's smoking outside and I smell it, I'm outraged. I can't imagine. I I, I can't believe that. My first job, we had an ashtray on the conference table in the advertising agency I worked in. This is back in the 70s. That you could smoke on airplanes. And it's just self-evident. It's visceral to me now. But that is, uh, you know, that's the evolution of our own sensitivity. And we don't get that until we're moving into the postmodern world or, you know, late modern. And to expect that people who aren't at the same stage we are or aren't at this working through the same set of lenses that we are get it in the same way that we do is actually a form of aggression and paradoxically a new kind of oppression that we see in the overreach of political correctness as you know green multiculturalism and pluralism falls so deeply in love with itself So as integralists, we see all of this. We uh, can relate to it. We can find it in our own histories. We can feel it in our own chakric systems. And in so doing, we become bigger. We become more tolerant of and or friendlier towards our own failings and the failings of others. And maybe even stop seeing them that way. Um, the way that we you know, we certainly don't think of a nine-year-old as being a defective 12-year-old. A nine-year-old's a nine-year-old. All of us are on a, a trajectory of development. That's just built into the system. And that becomes essentially the new grand narrative of history. Yay, we get our grand narrative back. Except this grand narrative isn't obviated by science. In fact, it's science that reveals it to us. Science shows us that we banged into being 14 billion years ago and we worked our way from stardust to Starbucks. I just made that up.
But yeah, there really is something happening here. And it's we're not in charge of it. We're sort of in charge of our piece of it, but there are whole systems at work here. And the sort of moral realization is that we're not really here to fix each other. It doesn't really work. That's a, what we realize. It, and actually, I don't really want you to be more like me. I actually want you to be more you. I want to see who you are and who you're growing into, and I want to help that happen. And we're going to start right where you are and right where I am right now. And that becomes your orientation so that you can really approach everybody as a friend. Uh, that doesn't mean you let them walk all over you. That doesn't mean that you don't set limits. That doesn't mean that you don't challenge them. But it does mean that you have to love them. And um, I know a lot of you are thinking about this and, and what this means. I think this really is new territory. I got a lovely letter from one of my listeners, Robbie Grabowitz, and, and I'll quote just a couple lines. He said, I've thought about writing something about how our culture could benefit from reintegrating some of the imaginative consciousness of red that Donald Trump is such a master of wielding. He goes on to say, I feel like we don't only need to be able to wield facts, but also to have some part of us operating from the level of consciousness that makes alternative facts. I don't know what that really looks like quite yet, but it's an idea I've been floating around. Don't you love that? I love that. So yeah, where's our red? What are we doing with our red? And maybe we need to shrug off a certain kind of propriety, the same way the Victorians did eventually, uh, and allow a little less civility, a little more honesty. In, remember that radical honesty movement back in the, whenever it was the 90s, where everybody told the unadulterated truth. It's a practice. I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous one, and we're not going to go all the way there. But I think we can handle more. I think we can handle the alt-right acting up at public events, like the left did in the 60s. They're speaking truth to power uh, by their own lights. We can expand ourselves to tolerate that as long as people aren't getting hurt. Now, people's feelings can get hurt. That's the thing. But people's bodies can't. That's a bright line that we can draw. And within that bright line, we can make it our business to just drink each other up, man. You know, appreciate each other. And appreciate the different ways the truth is revealed to each of us. I was uh, reading Whitman the other night, and you know Whitman loved to hang out with the lower classes and the immigrants, and he even went to slave markets when he was in the South and hung out with the dock guys and all of that stuff. And he not only tolerated, he celebrated their uncouthness and turned it into art. And here's a few lines from his wonderful poem, I Sing the Body Electric. He says, the male is not less than the soul. He's talking the male, M-A-L-E, is not less than the soul, nor more. He too is in his place. He too, the male, is all qualities. He is action and power. The flush of the known universe is in him. Scorn becomes him well, and appetite and defiance become him well. The wildest, largest passions, bliss that is utmost, sorrow that is utmost, become him well. Pride is for him. The full-spread pride of man is calming and excellent to the soul. Oh, as always, thank you so much, Walt. Oh, what art can do. All right, everybody. I think that's uh, enough for now. I think we're bumping up. Yeah, we're bumping up against the one hour mark. So I think I'll call it a podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You can check out more of my stuff at dailyevolver.com. All right. Until next time, this is Jeff Salzman signing off. Keep it integral, people.